You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Cyber spies steal prototype missile data, others hack into South Asian telecoms, and still others go after EasyJet passengers' travel data. Cyber attacks, misinformation, and cyber fraud continue to follow the COVID-19 pandemic. Joe Kerrigan weighs in on the Thunder Spy vulnerability. Our guest is James Dawson with insights on DMARC threats and why it's worse during COVID-19. And think twice before you post, no matter how good or bad you think the beer is. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, May 20th, 2020. Japan's defense ministry is investigating the possible theft of technical details from a proposal concerning a missile designed by Mitsubishi Electric. Reuters says that details of the cyber espionage are sparse, but that the data stolen probably included certain performance specifications. The report adds that the missile won't be produced. The materials stolen appear to have been from files associated with the proposal, and apparently Mitsubishi Electric didn't get the contract. Researchers at Broadcom Symantec Unit are attributing attacks on South Asian telecommunications companies to Greenbug, an espionage group associated with Iran, and thought to be connected to the group responsible for Shamoon. CyberScoop reports that most of the activity was directed against Pakistan's telecommunications system. Telcos are attractive targets because of the value of the data they carry. The focus on Pakistan suggests a service with a strong interest in the region. The Jerusalem Post, considering the recent cyber attack on an Iranian port as retaliation for a cyber attack on Israeli water treatment facilities, sees the exchange as typifying a new approach to cyber war continuous engagement. Sources tell Reuters that Chinese intelligence services were responsible for the EasyJet hack that affected some 9 million passengers. The anonymous sources say that the same threat group had tracked travelers before and was interested in their movements, not in financial gain from credit card theft. Australia's government has condemned unnamed nation-states for conducting and supporting cyber attacks under the cover of the coronavirus, the Australian Financial Review reports. The countries may be unnamed, but the prospect of arousing China's ire, the article alludes to, suggests that the subtext indicates a bad conscience somewhere in the vicinity of Beijing. Either that or, of course, injured innocence, since it goes without saying that China denies any involvement in cyber attacks conducted during the pandemic. COVID-19 misinformation continues to find alternative outlets, Increased fact-checking and content moderation by social media providers may have pushed misinformation into other channels where it can circulate without much hindrance. The Washington Post takes the documentary Plandemic as its example. 
The documentary, whose long trailer has been pushed from YouTube and other social media, has been circulating using apps such as Google Drive. Short comments on the trailer, written to avoid language that would trip content moderation alerts, appear on major social media platforms, and these in turn direct visitors to the sites where the trailer is available. Plandemic, which retails a complex and implausible conspiracy theory about the alleged corporate and government interests that the filmmakers claim are behind the pandemic, has provided a popular example of COVID-19 misinformation. It's often cited as an example of the dangerous potential of misinformation. Its recent distribution also affords an example of the difficulty of controlling such misinformation spread. Unemployment relief assistance designed to compensate workers who've lost their jobs during the economic stress of the pandemic are being targeted by scammers. Agari reports that much of the criminal fraud against such relief programs observed by the U.S. states of Florida, Massachusetts, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, Washington, and Wyoming are the work of the Scattered Canary Gang, a criminal group based in Nigeria. The researchers outlined a few of the approaches— They found that 82 fraudulent claims for CARES Act economic impact payments were filed between April 15th and 29th. Since April 29th, at least 147 fraudulent unemployment claims were filed in the state of Washington. Between May 15th and 16th, 17 fraudulent unemployment claims were filed in Massachusetts. And most recently, Agari has observed signs that the criminals are turning their attentions toward Hawaii where on the evening of May 17th, two claims were registered with the state's Department of Labor and Industrial Relations. The techniques Scattered Canary is using are the grubby, low-tech stuff of petty cybercrime. Bleeping Computer says that the gang is using social security numbers and other personal data stolen from identity theft victims to create bogus accounts on assistance sites. As the Washington Post points out, state relief agencies are under the gun to provide assistance to people who need it, in a hurry, and haste is usually accompanied by a certain relaxation of vigilance. James Dawson is a contractor and advisor to Danske Bank, working in the IT Business Risk and Controls Division in the office of the CISO. He shares his insights on DMARC and DKIM threats and why particular vigilance is in order in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Every bank and financial service organization right now, Dave, is is trying to manage the crisis. That's one thing. Everybody working from home and and all of the challenges of having your workforce completely remote. There's all sorts of technical challenges that you gotta you gotta face, you gotta solve. And but then there's also the the threats. The threats change. So during the crisis, during the COVID nineteen crisis, we've noticed that the threats have changed to much more intensive phishing and spoofing campaigns are going on. Hmm. Well, take us through that. What sort of things are you addressing? Well, you know, uh, generally, I think that most organizations are relying upon uh, Center Policy Framework, which is SPF, that and Domain Key Identified Mail, and also Domain Message Authentication Reporting and Conformance. So that's DKIM and DMARC. Along with TLS, those are the most preferred methods of trying to fight against spoofing or phishing. So during the crisis, it's one thing to be able to protect your own domain. So you already apply those protocols so that you can protect your own domain. Um, Just as an example, take Citibank.com. 
Mm. You have methods of protecting that domain, and you can also train the individuals within your organization to, even though they see a message coming from what looks like the bank's domain, um, to question it. Is it really something that I need to address, or is it something that I would even click on or something that I would act upon? So that's one thing. And then the other thing is to have your threat professionals and those that are doing your research and doing uh, the, the settings for your revision to your DKIM protocols and your DMARC, to have them start thinking like a criminal. And I know we've, we've discussed this before in your program. Now, you know, I, I've seen in email correspondences with folks that uh, a lot of enterprises will have a feature in their email where if something comes from outside of the organization, that gets flagged, you know, in, in unambiguous terms within the female, within the uh, email that says, you know, this this message came from outside of the organization. Is that sort of thing helpful for, for tracking those those spoofed emails, the ones that are that look close to the name of the organization but aren't quite right? Yeah. Yep, I like those. Even the ones that look like they're actually coming from the authority can still be spoofed. And I like those warnings on any message that comes from outside the bastion of the organization. And so those little messages, those little tags, we call them mitered messages. They're mitered onto the mail as it as it goes through the, um, the production server to route the, the message. Um, if they're short and sweet, if they're clear and simple, then people will read them and act upon them. If they're verbose and lots of scary words and letters in them, people just think that there's some sort of warning and they skip over them. Hmm. That's a problem with that sort of thing. That's James Dawson from Danske Bank. Last Line this morning released the results of a study that focused on NRDS, newly registered domains, with an evident COVID-19 theme. They've concluded that there's less novelty about these efforts than might have been expected, while phishing is up, it appears the criminals are devoting more effort to refreshing and re-emphasizing existing campaigns to match the times than they are in coming up with innovative approaches. The UK's contact tracing app undergoing trials on the Isle of Wight is attracting further skepticism about its efficacy. While download rates during the trials have been reported to be satisfyingly high, Computer Weekly reports that recent studies have cast doubt on the willingness of British users to install the app. The existing NHS app, not the contact tracing app, but rather the app through which patients access healthcare data and book appointments with their doctors, is being considered for adaptation into an immunity passport, the Telegraph writes. According to the app's developer, iProve, addition of facial recognition software to the tool could be used to verify the identity and immunity status of users. Finally, some security advice for military and intelligence professionals. Treat beer as a commodity and be content. Bellingcat points out the risks of using the Untapped app to rate brews. You can be tracked. Untapped engages in what Bellingcat calls meticulous location tracking, showing the locations where the users consumed the beer they were rating. It's not so much that Untapped is irresponsible. In fact, Bellingcat describes the app's privacy settings as being pretty decent. It's just that it's possible to correlate locations and movements with other social media, and as is almost always the case, people want to upload pictures of the places where they're enjoying themselves. So resist the temptation, military and intelligence professionals. Enjoy your beer responsibly and privately.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, We have seen uh, stories coming from many, many different directions about this uh, new attack that is being called ThunderSpy. Yep. And this has to do with Thunderbolt ports. Uh, You and I have been looking at some research from the folks over at Duo, but uh, this is being written about it all over the place. Right. Uh, What is your take on this? First of all, can you describe to us what's going on here? The research comes from a master's student at Eindhoven University of Technology. His name is Bjorn Reitenberg, and I hope I'm saying that right. Um, (laughs) But um, it's a vulnerability in Thunderbolt, and at the very root of the vulnerability is a design decision that the uh, chips on a Thunderbolt controller do not run signed code. Hmm. Um, So that's, that's really the root of the problem. So that means that... If I can have physical access to that controller, I can change the software that runs on that controller. Mm-hmm. And Thunderbolt is is a protocol. I mean, I, I suppose it's probably more uh, widely known uh, with Mac users who've had. Right. There's a whole generation of Macs that had Thunderbolt uh, ports on them, and you use that for uh, things like external hard drives or external monitors. It's a sort of a high speed port. Right. It's a high-speed port. It's uh, the same external port as a display port, um, although more recent versions actually run over a USB-C port. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of, of dual-purposing port designs. <laughs> I think that's a bad idea, but, you know, 
that horse has left the barn on this one. Uh, <laughs> right, and, right. and that's just, I think that might just be me old manning it, you know, going, oh, my, you have all this re- <laughs> right, right, right. But um, yeah, I, I've used window co- Windows computers all my life and Linux computers uh, more recently for the past five years. Uh, and I have never had a computer with a Thunderbolt port on it at all. Hmm. So it's not something that's all that common. It does. This attack does require physical access to the device. Not only that, but you have to open the device up and then you have to uh, attach your own malicious device onto it to rewrite the firmware on this on this chip. Uh, right. And because this chip runs unsigned firmware, you can run arbitrary code on it if you can get that level of access. Yeah, um, and, and that's the part that I think people are, are drawing attention to here is that uh, the whole fact that you need access to the machine, this is commonly referred to as an evil maid attack, where right. the, the notion is you've left your computer in your hotel room while you've you know gone down to the bar or out to have a bite to eat, and an evil maid can come in and, and do what they want to do with your machine. And so people, I think, raise their eyebrows over the odds of that being an issue for folks in their everyday lives. Yeah, there's an old saying we used to say, uh, physical access is root access. Right. Hmm. Uh, if I can touch a machine, I can I can do anything I want to it. Uh, but one of the main protections against uh, against physical access being root access is you can encrypt your hard drive. Right. And that way your data at rest is is secure. If someone steals your laptop, they can't uh, and they can't access it, then they can't get to the data. But apparently with this attack, if someone steals your laptop while it's maybe in sleep mode and then they open it up uh, or they perform this uh, malicious attack on it, they can actually get into all the files that are encrypted on your hard drive because those those files have already been accessed by the operating system through the encryption protocol, right? Through whatever encryption workflow to access those files. Because encrypted files are of no use to you unless you can actually access them when you need to and you're authorized to, right? Right, right. So this, that's, I think, the biggest single interesting thing about this is that if I have access to a computer that I know has data that I want on it, then I can get that data even if that data has been encrypted using whole disk encryption. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess you know a lot of the articles have pointed out that uh, more recent machines, machines made in the past few years, don't seem to be susceptible to this. So yeah. if you're concerned, uh, it's a good excuse to upgrade. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but uh, but also it's, it strikes me that if you're someone who thinks you might be susceptible to someone coming into your hotel room, for example, or your office or wherever and – uh, using the physical access to alter that machine, then you're going to know about that. And right. You're going to have protections in place to try to minimize the likelihood of that happening. Absolutely. You know, we've heard stories about people who who have left. Uh, I think it was Kevin Mitnick who told the story about leaving uh, leaving his hotel or his computer in his hotel and then giving it to somebody else to work on it. And the person who was working on it said, "Why did you open this up and tighten the screws down so hard?" And he's, "I didn't do that." And somebody had had done that to his computer. I think mm, that was Kevin. Right. But you know, if you was, if you know yeah. uh, if you know uh, who that is, if you know that you're that kind of person that is at risk for that, then yeah, you're going to do uh, you're going to take other measures. Yeah, it's interesting that they make the point in one of these articles that uh, while the the odds of someone falling victim to this may be low, it's still a good thing that we know about this because it it advances our knowledge of types of attacks that we need to be aware of. Right. It is interesting research. And and Intel should actually, and I think they they probably are in the future, design their chips to only run with signed versions of their firmware. That that should be standard security practice by now. But, you know, it, it, it's going to take some time to implement these practices across 
all this hardware, and that hardware has to age out. And over, but over time, we'll move in a more secure direction against things yeah. like this. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.